We're going to turn now to look at the Word of God together. Please turn with me to Paul's first letter to the church in Thessalonia. First Thessalonians, we're going to be looking at the first chapter this morning. Let's pray as we get ready to come to his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we are in awe before it, for it brings life to dead souls. It brings warmth to cold hearts and brings clarity to confused minds. Uh, Father, uh, warm our hearts this morning, I pray. Give us clarity and vision, a sense of of the path that you have for us in these days uh, for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the word of the Lord. You know, whether you've been uh, live or uh, live streaming for the last several months, we've been looking at Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia. And uh, the pictures that we've seen in those sermon studies has been a picture of a sad church. Um, A church rocked by theological error and broken relationships. And Paul, as he addresses that church, is he's upset. And you just hear his, his frustration, his anger, his disappointment. You hear his emotion. Just listen to these words that I, I just picked out of the text. He says, I'm astounded. He says of the one who's bringing error, let him be accursed. He says, let me ask you, What happened to all your joy? Uh, Don't you even listen to the law? Um, God is not mocked. And beware, you don't destroy each other with your prideful bickering. Wow. But Paul was not an angry young man. Um, He just... He just loved the church, and he longed to see it blossom and thrive. He longed for a, for a be- I'm going to use the word, a beautiful church, um, uh, in, in God's sense, for a glorious church. 
And it seems when we turn and look at the way he writes about the church in Thessalonica that he found something of what it was that he was looking for, Um, that beautiful church. And he gives, listen to what he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, as he's describing that church, you want to take a look at what that church is like. And I'd like to do that with us having an eye both back to that church, but also on our own church. Uh, some of you may know that this month uh, marks the beginning of the 15th year of what's become Ascension Presbyterian Church. Now, those of you who are big into church history may think 15 years doesn't really sound like all that much. But let me tell you that those of us who've been around in the early days doubted that this church would ever see its third year. So we're praising God and thanking us for the 15 years, realizing that He has more for our church, for us as a body of believers in this time and place. And we like to think and use this passage of Scripture to help us think more about what that calling is and how we might attain it. Um, So we're going to look at the church the way that it can be and how a church gets to be that way. We're going to look at what our role is in church formation and growth. We're also going to look at how it is that things get messed up in the church and then we're going to look at a way forward. So the way the church, um, the way the church can be, the way that Paul saw the church in Thessalonica, uh, there's in verse three. It's all there in verse three, and you see um, a string of action words. It's a progressive string talking about activity. He speaks of that he saw work. Um, when you think of work, you know things are getting done. There's no idling. There's no dawdling. Uh, when work takes place, things get better. Uh, the world looks prettier. Lives are enhanced. Uh, joy grows. So work's going on. But there's work, and then there's work work. Um, there's labor. And um, some of us know that when there's labor comes along, along with it comes sweat. And there's heavy lifting. And this is where you call in the big guns. Uh, I enjoy puttering or working in my yard and fixing the little things. But when our roof failed a few years ago, I called the laborers. I called the big guns. It was more than I could handle. So there's that labor is is something that's even more than work. Um, But then he uses the word um, uh, steadfastness. Uh, also could be translated perseverance. One Bible translator put it this way, it's sheer dogged determination. Um, um, We've known this year that there are nurses who work, faithfully work at their shifts and their calling, at the tasks that they've been given. We also know that there are nurses who labor who work in the hard places, in the emergency rooms and in the surgery centers and the ICUs, who really pour themselves out on behalf of very, very sick people. But this year we also learned that there are nurses and doctors and uh, scores of other kinds of people who not only worked and not only labored, uh, but who who stuck with it uh, until they couldn't 
stand up anymore in steadfastness. And we see that, that, that progression kind of here. And Paul says, I saw all of that when I looked at the church and the message that I'm getting about this particular church. Take a breath and say, you know, that could just sound like a whole lot of busyness, a whole lot of hard work. And, and I, it, it isn't necessarily very attractive. Just because people are busy doesn't mean that they're beautiful or that they're necessarily doing anything attractive. But Paul uses modifying words to describe these kind, this kind of work that's going on. Uh, and this gives us a hint, gives us a picture of the, of the beauty of this church. He speaks of faith and hope and love. Um, these are a trilogy, a trilogy of God-wrought transformation in human beings. And you won't find these things in the general population. These are harm, hallmarks of a redeemed life. And they don't get the attention that I think they deserve, and yet they're all over the New Testament. For instance, 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul's great chapter on the picture of love, and he concludes by saying, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And then Paul returns to this same trilogy of transformation in 1 Thessalonians 5 when he says, let's be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, I think each one of these things, faith and hope and love, deserve at least one sermon all of their own, but I'm going to just try to give you a couple sentence thumbnail of, of how I think this applies to this beautiful church, and we'll come back some other time if the Lord wills. So the picture of faith, when you think about all this work that's going on, faith in the context of our work is believing that the world belongs to the Lord's by virtue of His creation and by virtue of his redemption. And therefore, when you go about your work, you're going about work in your father's world and therefore about your father's business. And doesn't that change the focus of everything? It means you're part of something bigger than yourself. And in one sense, that gives you a sense to be composed. It isn't all on your shoulders. It's not your ideas. You're just doing your part uh, that God has set before you. And then the picture of love. You know, Faith, we look at the world and we see there's things that need to be fixed. There's things that are broken. Faith helps us see that. But love takes that need and turns it into action. It produces change. Everyone knows that to love someone is to labor on their behalf. Love is, is hard work. And then, then hope. The question comes, you know, where does, where does the stick to the stick to come from to, to hang in there for the long haul. Anybody can, can sprint a distance. Everybody can show up for a little thing, but, but what drives that life that, that, that just stays in the path of serving and glorifying God? The answer is hope. Um, not that the hope that, that we would make things better or that somebody else would make things better, but rather that the one the one who orders history is actually moving toward us and he will make things not merely better, he will make them right. 
If you know the one's coming who's going to make up all the deficits, put everything back right again, you can keep going just a little bit longer because you know that he has got you and he's got your friends and he's got your world. So how does this come about? How does this, this glorious church of, of work and labor and steadfastness and faith and hope and love, how does that get to be a church that Paul could celebrate? Well, one thing I need to say is that it doesn't happen because of good management practices. Somebody didn't come along and the leaders of the church and decide, you know, we need to turn things around here and I've got a seven-point plan for you that will, will really put the church in Thessalonica on the map. Um, there's none of that. Neither is it, did it happen because somebody stood up and browbeat the congregation with guilt and shame into getting their act together finally. Um, preachers sometimes do that. I've, I've done it. I hope I'm not doing it today. Um, but that doesn't change things, really. It just makes people feel bad. The thing that happened was that something came to the church that wasn't there before, and in its coming, it transformed them. And the thing that came was the gospel, the good news that Paul proclaimed. It was what he was fighting for in Galatia, and it came here, and it changed everything. Um, look at what he says in verse 5. Our gospel came to you. The gospel came. And, and how does this how is this change possible? How does the gospel uh, change anything? Well, the answer is that the gospel is power. It's powerful, and it comes in power. He says, the gospel came to you not only in word. It is words. There's a message to be proclaimed, a message to be believed, but it doesn't come just in words. It's not philosophers' ideas uh, or um, kings or rulers' edicts. Um, rather, it comes... Um, in, in power. Um, it comes in the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, that's not a power that, that, that can be seen in, the, in any place in the world except by the Spirit, the, the third person of the Trinity, uh, coming with the Word and applying it to people's hearts. And what does this power accomplish? You know, I'd like to say I'd like to start the sermon over again and start here, but, but let me just say a couple of things. Let's just look at, at maybe one word about what this power accomplishes, and I think the word that ought to jump out at us is the word in verse 6, that they received the word, skip over a few other words, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The thing, the power of the word as it transforms people is that it 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 brings, it produces joy. Now, we'd all like to be happy. We'd all like to celebrate victories and birthdays and accomplishments. Um, but this joy is not the world's happiness, but rather um, it's that um, we, we come to the deep awareness that everything bad is becoming good through Christ, that Christ is making all things new, including us and our world and our future, uh, and that therefore we're going to be okay because God has reconciled us to Himself through the death of His Son. Um, this is also joy of the Holy Spirit because, and I don't think we think about this enough, that the Holy Spirit is full of joy. I've often sort of thought of the Holy Spirit, you know, he's like the delivery guy who brings your pizza. 
you know, and he doesn't eat your pizza. He just brings it and leaves it, and then you eat it, and you get the joy. But the Holy Spirit is full of joy because he's, he's bringing salvation to the, the, to the Son's people, uh, to the world of God. And, and the Father and the Son and the Spirit all rejoice and are, all are full of joy as, as, as this transformation takes place in this church and in that city and in that country. Um, that's pretty exciting. There's a lot going on here, and our response is, is an inward celebration uh, of, of God in our lives. Now, I don't think we can really appreciate how great this joy is until we pay attention to the part of the statement that I skipped over. Um, he says, you received the word in much affliction. And I have trouble, don't you have trouble fitting together the word affliction and joy? When was the last time you had an affliction? Uh, were you filled with joy? Affliction is pain and suffering, pure and simple. It's hardship. It's something that no one asks for. No one would choose it. Pardon me, we would push it aside unless, unless the life that the gospel brings is so great it's so different from everything else we've known. It's so what we were made for that um, it's the affliction is worth the cost of, of the benefit of that salvation coming. A very small example would be if, if you were um, diagnosed with cancer uh, and you faced surgery, but knowing that you had a pretty good outcome, the, the hopes were pretty positive that this would work, you know that as a result of major surgery, you've got a long, maybe a long, uncomfortable recovery period, but, but you don't turn back, you don't hesitate, you say, Doc, let's go for it, because you want to get on with your life. Uh, and so the afflictions that come to all of us in our life, in all of our days, um, they're not the focus, they're not the main, the main thing we say. We'll, we'll take those because we know that God has got us uh, and that we'll be okay and we will celebrate uh, in the end. Now there's one more, one more thing that I'd like us to pay attention here about this idea of, of, of what, this, what this gospel does. Um, the gospel has so much power that... Um, that the Thessalonians, that it, it the Thessalonians, let me just give you the picture, the Thessalonians become part of the story. It isn't just that the story comes to them and they say, yeah, we got it, but they actually become part of the story of the gospel. It, this is so amazing, and yet Paul actually spends a lot of time in this, in this passage talking about the fact that the Thessalonians now are part of the story of the gospel of God, verses 6 and 7 and 8 and 9. Um, they aren't the heart of the message. The heart of the message is always Christ. Uh, but look, look at verse 8. He, uh, Paul said, not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, um, that's the message that came. They received it and they passed it on. That, that word went out uh, into the adjoining uh, towns and villages and communities and countries. But he says, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. So when he's talking about um, about the faith, he's not talking about 
the gospel message. He's talking about the fact, the news, what went forth was the news that these Thessalonians had put their faith in God. They become part of the story. Their trusting God uh, was news. And uh, I think we underestimate the importance of these words. The gospel is good news. But one question that people may have is, is it working now? Uh, today, could it work for me? And so the fact that you um, have, a, have become a joy-filled follower of Christ in the midst of your afflictions can be very good news and encouragement to the people around you who are sick to death of trying to make a life of happiness out of the emptiness, out of the emptiness of our age. Um, you could be part of the gospel story in the lives of your friends and your neighbors as, as it becomes clear that, that you're not the same person that you used to be. And so I'm wondering if we shouldn't be asking ourselves why it is that our, our lives don't make more of a, dis, a difference, why it is that for us people in Tacoma aren't talking about the things that are going on in Ascension Presbyterian Church in Edmonds, um, why um, we're not you know, getting the attention of, of things going on in, in Lake Stevens and in, in Shoreline. Um, you know, we, we blame it on the culture. Well, they just don't listen. They just don't see. But um, I've said this before, to quote a better minister than I, it, the, the question is, if we as a body of believers just ceased to exist, just disappeared, would anyone even notice? I don't know the answer to that, but um, if that's true, um, that, that certainly was not what was going on in the Church of Thessalonians. So, so I wonder if the heart problem could be for us as, a, as this church and as the church culture that we're part of, is that Christians have become observers of the gospel rather than players, than participants in its movement. Um, we cheer from the stands or we boo. Um, we aren't saved sinners, rather we've become the upstanding upholders of the truth who cheer the good guys and boo the bad guys. But, but if COVID has taught us anything, it's, it's this, and I'm thinking about this having watched some basketball yesterday, um, that the game goes on because of the players on the court, not because of the fans in the stands. And the Thessalonians, they were players. They were active. They were participants. And people took notice. That's what Paul is saying. Um, they, we, don't, we don't have to say anything about it because the reports are coming back uh, to us about what you've been doing. We've been hearing it from third parties. So um, that's pretty exciting. Um, maybe there's a change that we need to make. And uh, if the change that we might need to make would, maybe we should become imitators of the Thessalonians. Paul said that the Thessalonians became imitators of him, and he didn't seem to think that was a bad thing because he was imitating Jesus Christ the Lord, that maybe we could follow their example. 
And, and Paul gives us a picture of what that, um, what that example was as he describes the three things that, that these, they didn't just set out to build a, a busy church of faith, hope, and love. There were simply three things that they did. They turned, they served, and they waited. That's what people were talking about. So what would it look like for us? Um, he says that, the Thessalonians turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven. Um, the first thing was to turn from idols. You know, when you turn, if you really turn, uh, you make a departure. Um, you are going somewhere else than you were going before. You're leaving something behind. You're getting a fresh start. Um, and it's idols, and um, Austin, thank you very much for that explanation. I don't need to repeat that. That was well done about how idols are not things on shelves, but they're things in our hearts that, that get our devotion. Um, leaving behind those things that once gave their life's meaning, um, the, the things that give culture meaning, they left those things behind. Um, and people defend their idols, and so when you, when you give up idols, you've really given up something that's really significant. Uh, but not only did they turn from idols, they turned to serve the living and true God. You know, we may not understand the word serve well enough because we think of someone serving a term as, a, as an elder or a deacon or an uh, office holder, um, or we think of serving uh, at uh, Everett Gospel Mission or serving in the nursery. But when Paul's talking about serving a living and true God, he's not talking about a job, but he's talking about a basic identity. Someone is a servant that's not only what they do, it's who they are. Now, servants are often thought of as being a sort of lower class, you know, upstairs, downstairs. Um, but for one to be called a servant of a living and true God, you know, that's a higher kind of calling you're talking about. It's a higher identity, but that it is, it's what shapes them. And then he says that, that they, they, in serving the living and true God, they were waiting for his Son from heaven. You know, there's three verbs here, turn, serve, and wait, but it's re in one real sense, it's, it's only really one activity. These, you can't just have one of these. They all, they all fit together. It's simply this living with the King in view, living with the Lord Jesus Christ uh, in view. Um, in view of what he's done in the past, he came as a servant, and he's made us right. He's reconciled us to God, and that's something we count on. We go forward in that. But he's also pre present now through his Spirit who's working and enabling us uh, to live in relationship to him and to serve him in the present time. Uh, but uh, the, son didn't, the son didn't just die and get raised from the dead and go back to heaven and say, mission accomplished. Um, his atoning work, as he said on the cross, it is finished. He's done all the work needed to enable, to make you a son or a daughter of a living and true God, part of his family of love. Uh, but his making new all things, as he says, make all things new, uh, that work is in progress, and it'll keep on being in progress until he gloriously finishes it when he comes again. 
And what that means is that to become part of his family is to look forward to that new kingdom, that new heaven and earth, that whole, that, a, a world in which righteousness and peace indeed dwell uh, for our good and for the glory of God. And what that means is then that, that all the, the little ways that we hope to, to get a leg up, an inch forward, get some security and some peace, you know, they may all just be passing away that they're, they're temporary at best, if they are best, uh, and that the thing we're looking forward to is the final making right of all things. Um, that's the big news. The big news is that Jesus is coming again. And there, the, the Thessalonians were into that, into that big news. Now, again, we look at the church the way we, we read about it here in Thessalonia. They were not, it was not a perfect church. Paul goes on to give them in the letter uh, guidance and instruction, but they were, they were well on their way. They were playing the right game on the right field at the right time. Uh, and, uh, and yet churches, they don't all, we're not perfect. Things get messed up. And we ought to think about that. It wouldn't hurt to to, um, to take a look at the way that maybe we get things messed up. And I would just point you back to maybe it's in those failures of those three things that characterize the Thessalonians that we would look at our own hearts and consider, um, is, is, is this where we've stumbled and, and not discovered the fullness of the life that Christ intends for us? Failures to turn from idols. Um, we, maybe you connect with this, see if you do. We substitute real turning, real life change to turning our heads. How often have you done that? You've turned your head uh, to judge the sins of others while thinking that you yourself have no need to turn, to repent. Um, we also fail to turn from idols by simply trading idols. Um, we get rid of the, you know, those disreputable idols that uh, no one would want, uh, and, and we, we trade them in on some more culturally sanitary ones. Um, and, and, but it's, it's, we're devoted to something other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me suggest one that I think is a huge problem in all of our age and our culture, but it's also a problem in the church, and that is the idol of our reputation. How we guard our reputation. And you know you do it, and you know it's an idol because if your reputation is threatened, don't you find yourself just getting up in, in ire and wrath and defending and fighting for it? Jesus did not defend his reputation. Paul did not defend his reputation. He says, I won't boast about anything except Jesus Christ. And we're so quick to boast about who we are. Um, and that we, we spend a lot of energy and mental effort and time trying to build that reputation rather than letting God have our reputation, let Him take care of it, and let us be simply about the work of advancing His reputation. Um, one other thing we do instead of turning from idols is we mask the symptoms of our idolatry. One way we mask symptoms is over-verbalization. Or if you want a translation, it's called God talk. 
Um, if we can talk a lot about God and spiritual things, maybe nobody will notice that we look like just the same idolaters as everybody else. Um, the other thing that we do is we decorate our lives um, with distractions that, uh, that hide the idols that, that lurk underneath. You know, you can, put, you can put curtains in the outhouse, but it still stinks. Uh, decoration uh, is not turning. And then lastly, a suggestion, uh, we, instead of turning from idols, we find we turn from God's people. We isolate, we hide. Uh, nobody will know what an idolater I am and how I'm really all about me if, if I don't ever let anybody into my heart, if I don't let anybody into my life. Um, easy things to fall into in our day. Now, I could go on, I don't have time to go on, but I could talk about the failures to serve, uh, how we lower the bar, and how we, we've turned a life of service into doing a good turn, um, but it's hardly our identity. And I could go on and talk about our failures to wait. You know, we're, we're, not, we're not very good at waiting. We become impatient if uh, the pizza is late. Um, uh, and to wait... To wait for the coming of God means we're, we're willing that things aren't going to be right. They're not going to be 100% right in our lives or our world right now. And we're not going to take illegal and immoral means to make things work out for us. We're going to wait. We're going to experience those afflictions and those sufferings that are common to all people throughout their lives. We're going to wait for that. Um, and one huge problem that we have is that, you know, the waiting for, for the coming of Jesus seems that's, that's way so far off. It really doesn't connect with my daily life. You know, maybe it would connect more with our daily life if we didn't um, treat the pain, if we didn't, uh, it's like um, if you take aspirin and it gets rid of your fever, well, now you've lost this, one of the symptoms of COVID. You don't know that you're sick. And so we... We, we hide the symptoms, we mask over the symptoms of, of our brokenness uh, and, and the emptiness of our life and not realize that, boy, we really do need Jesus to come in his might and his power to make all things right. Now, that could be a real downer. I hope it hasn't been too down. But, um, but it wouldn't be such a bad thing to stop and to do a self-assessment of your heart when it comes to this turning and serving and waiting. But hear this, just resolving to doing better isn't really going to change anything. It doesn't solve the problem. You know, we need to look for the reasons why we've compromised with the direction of our lives. And so I'd like to urge you to think about two heart attitudes that undermine my best intentions and your best intentions. First, I'd ask you to consider your fears. Fear. Fear is such a powerful motivator. How many things we do because we're afraid of what might happen. Um, we do rash things. We do cowardly things. We do stupid things. Um, and, and think about this. To live a life of turning and serving and waiting means that to really do that, you've really got to be convinced that God is really in charge of the world and that he's taking charge of the world in love for your good and mine. 
You see, if you doubt that God is in charge, if you're in doubt that you're really working for, for the boss, for the ultimate boss, the one who's in control, then, you know, if you doubt that, you're going to hang back. You're going to be half-hearted. You're going you're to be counting your cards or something. Um, you won't be pressing on to that, to the life that Jesus says is, is abundant um, because of fear. You will fail to turn and fail to serve and fail to wait. Um, so what can you do about that? Well, one thing I guarantee you should do is don't focus on your fears because you know what happens when you think about your fears. You become more fearful. It's a vicious spiral that goes downward. Don't think about what you're doing. Brothers and sisters, think about what Jesus has done. Think about Jesus' work. But, but more than that, um, Zero in on the heart of Jesus and His love for you. This is what those of us who are in the, the Zoom Bible study or book study on Tuesday nights is the book Gentle and Lowly. This is what we're learning. I just stole this from the book. Stole it from uh, Elder Chris. Um, zero in. Zero in on the heart of Jesus for you. His love for you. In, in His love, He gave up. In His love, He gave up His life for you. In His love, He's committed to your eternal well-being. Um, in His love, He has His hand on all of your days, um, so that nothing can separate you from that love. So, before you take up a quest for personal renewal, brothers and sisters, take up renewed meditation on the unsearchable riches of the love of Christ for you. Now, I also need to point out, though, that in our fear, not only are we doubting that God is really good and really for us, but there's also that sneaking sense, isn't it, that, that our fearful choices, the choices we make because we're fearful that, you know, they, might just, they just might be better designed to get us through the ups and downs and pitfalls of, of life. Um, so, for some of us, um, there, there's that, that kind of sense that, you know, maybe, maybe I do have a better way. But for some of us, it isn't about the fear part at all. It's simply about the better way part. It's just the, it's, it's more of a battle of wills. Do you ever find yourself that you're, you're having a battle of will with God? God wants this from you, but you want that for yourself or from God. Um, you know what the will of God is for you, but, but you've got a better idea. Um, it can come simply down to this, I just don't want to do what the Lord calls me to. I don't want to go to Nineveh. I don't want to go to Africa. Um, and so, as much as I can, I'm going to sneak my will into my Christian life. Um, and that's really a bad deal. That's a bad deal. Because, you know, if fear is your problem, if fear is what leads you to stumble, you can bring that to the Bible study. You can bring that to your community group. You can bring that to your trusted friends and open your hearts. And you know what you're going to get back? Uh, your honesty. You're going to get back compassion and understanding and encouragement and prayer. You're going to give a sense that you're not alone, that you're going to be able to get through this. But if you're in a battle of wills with God, as a believer, you know, you're probably not going to bring that to your community group. 
because you say, you know, I'm a hard-hearted, rebellious sinner, and I kind of like it that way, you know, and you know what you're going to be met with is probably stunned, shock, silence, and saying those words are never said at Ascension Presbyterian Church, or you may get um, uh, minimizing, oh, it's not that bad, you couldn't be, you know, that bad. You may not get real help, um, which is, and, and so you keep it to yourself. That's what we do with our rebellion. We hide it and keep it to ourselves. And so when, the, the reason it's a bad deal is because that keeps us from having that wonderful opportunity of coming clean in repentance and, and being able to give up sometimes just one, one point of will at a time, one issue at a time, um, those closely held personal treasures. Uh, we miss the chance to, to give them up with the help of the body of Christ. But it isn't hopeless for those of you who are fighting God to preserve your own will. Uh, it's not hopeless because Christ is not surprised by it. Christ is not surprised by your rebellion. He doesn't hate you for it. He died for it. Um, and He's still pursuing you in His love. He may have been pursuing you for years and years, day upon day, um, with His love, pursuing you with love to bring you to a day. Maybe it's today that the day that you name that rebellious heart of yours, um, and you come to say, as you may never have said it before, um, Thy will, Thy will, O Christ, Thy will, O Christ, be done. Thy will, O Christ, be done. Are you ready to do that today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for, uh, for Your mercy to rebellious sinners like us. And we thank You for Your mighty power that has not left us stuck, uh, but that You draw near to the, the contrite in heart, to those who will open up uh, to You. And we thank You that you, pow you, by Your Spirit, You're powerful to work in us more than we could ask or think. So, Father, I pray that as we think about, as we have this sort of time out today or this time out season of COVID uh, to look at ourselves and our church, I pray, Lord, that you would, would help us uh, to see the beauty of the church that you're building uh, and uh, give ourselves uh, in your spirit and your power to its work and its beauty. I ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.